We are looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we continue our, we, we took a break last week looking at one of the practices of prayer, a very specific discipline, the discipline of meditation. But we return kind of each to our phrase-by-phrase phrase look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and this is how Jesus has taught us to pray. Pray then like this, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let me ask you this about your prayer life, because what we want and what our objective is in this series is not just to teach you some, just a structure to prayer, although that's part of the Lord's Prayer, to teach you a pattern of praying. Pray these things. Not, you don't necessarily have to pray the Lord's Prayer word for word. It is teaching you a pattern, that these are to be the values of your prayer life. But let me ask you this about your prayer life, an evaluative questions. Do you pray big prayers like we just prayed a few minutes ago? Is that a part of your daily prayer habits? Do you sense that your prayers are tapping into something that is cosmic and universal in scope? Are your prayers grand and mighty that are fitting for the type of prayers that would go to the God of the universe who spoke all creation into existence? Do you come to a place of passion in your prayers? Do you ever get passionate about your prayers? I mean, you, you get, I mean, you're angry or you're joyous or you're excited or you're crying out where you're literally, you're, your voice goes up. Is there longing in your prayers? Is there pleading and crying out? Do your prayers reflect that your life is for something greater than for your own personal edification? that you're living for something bigger than you? Do they, your prayers reflect that you're living for something larger than yourself? Or your prayers, frankly, just all about you? About your daily bread only? And do you leave the prayer room empowered to act with a longing to be a part of what God might be doing into this world? Do your prayers lead you into a life of battle, a warlike life for the kingdom of God? If not then my guess is that you're not praying what we would call kingdom prayers. You may be praying lovely prayers, good prayers, true prayers, great things to pray. But one of the primary focuses God gives before we pray for anything necessarily for ourselves or for our own forgiveness is that we focus on God, hallowed be thy name, and what he is about in this world. And Jesus taught us to pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you know that the driving force of Jesus' life, his ministry, that the greatest focus of his teaching and indeed the focus of his prayers was the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God or what is phrased in various places, particularly the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, more than any other subject. 
In fact, we did a whole series on the parables, and the subject of the parables, the singular thematic thing that goes through all the parables is this subject, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is mentioned 54 times in the book of Matthew, 20 times in the book of Mark, and 45 times in the book of Luke. At the heart of the good news is the proclamation that the kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's here. It's here. So are we a church that has embraced a longing for what the heart of what Jesus longs for? To see the kingdom of God come. A sign that I look for, that I would look for in my own life, and that I would look for in the life of this church is that our, our church is that kingdom prayers begin to flow rather naturally. That we're a people who are obsessed. We love praying these kind of big prayers. And that they pour out of us as God's children, as God's people. Well, here's the question. We've already asked a bunch of questions this morning. But here's the, the leading and the driving question that we're going to be answering this morning, which is this question. How do prayers for the kingdom of God come? How do you become a person who king, thy kingdom come prayers begin to just flow out of you as you drive around town? And that is, comes from a number of things. But here's what, that's the goal. Kingdom prayers, thy kingdom come prayers will flow out of you when, three things. When first, you capture a vision for the kingdom of God. And this kind of goes down to what it is. The kingdom of God is the number one thing that Jesus teaches about, and yet most Christians have no concept or no clue as to what the kingdom of God is. Let's look at what it is very briefly and try to capture a vision about the nature of this kingdom. Where, what is the kingdom of God? Well, first and foremost, the kingdom of God is wherever, generally speaking, wherever the king is at. You cannot have a kingdom without a king. The king is the essence of the kingdom. And a monarchy, that a true monarchy, not like the kind of like the, the, the in-name only ones like we have with the British Empire now, but no, the a true monarchy, that the, the character of the king flows throughout his kingdom. He is the description of the kingdom. Who he is is what becomes of the kingdom. The kingdom comes when the king comes. That is why Jesus, upon his own arrival, says the kingdom of God is at hand. And let me, real briefly, we're going to jump ahead for us for just a second, just to begin casting this vision about the kind of place that God is bringing when the king comes. When John the Baptist is in jail, and he is very distressed and disturbed about, he's at, looking at the question of, because he's looking at Jesus' ministry, and he's going, this doesn't look quite like I thought it was going to look. I thought Jesus was going to come and restore a type of kingdom that I really wanted to see happen. And so he sends messengers to Jesus, and he says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one, the king that we are looking forward to? And what was Jesus' response to this? Jesus' response to this was, hey, Disciples, go tell John this, that the blind see, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the captives are set free. See, what's really beginning, the very, that's a nutshell of the vision of the kingdom of God. When the king comes, what happens? The dead are raised. People are healed. People are brought to new life. People are no longer doubt. 
The captives are set free. This is what happens when Jesus the king has come. But let's dive into this further. What what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come? More specifically is that when the kingdom of God comes, this phrase, the second phrase of this prayer helps us understand what it means for the kingdom of God to come. Thy kingdom come, what does it say next? Thy will be done. In other words, the kingdom of God has come when God's will is being done in a particular place. The kingdom of God is where the king's rule and reign is truly and fully realized. In its fullest and most complete form, the kingdom of God is fully present, is fully present in this place when we obey God, when everything is as God longs and wills for it to be. Now, there is a sense, there is a sense in which all the world has always been God's kingdom, Right? He is the ruler of this place. He is the sovereign. He can do what he desires. But in another sense, everything or most things in this world are an utter and absolute rejection and rebellion against the true king. Any place where we see destruction and sin and brokenness, that is a place where God's kingdom has not yet fully come. And so there is a sense that even before Jesus returns, that God is the king, but it's after Jesus returns and what we look forward to in the second return of Christ, when he comes, when everything will be made right, when his world is as he created it to be. So that is what it fully means for the kingdom of God to come. So where is that place now? Where is the kingdom of God fully realized right now? Only one place, right? In heaven. That leads us to the third phrase of what it means for the kingdom of God to come. The kingdom of God is where the king is, where his will is done, and where is that place? Where where will this kingdom be? It will be here on earth, but where is it right now fully realized? In heaven. That's the final phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, to pray for God's kingdom to come means that you want the fullness, the full realization of God's kingdom to come up not just in heaven, but to come down here on earth. That's why Matthew actually calls it, in some ways, the kingdom of God is actually rephrased the kingdom of heaven. Helps us understand this. They're the same thing. The kingdom of God is on earth when the things are become like they are on heaven. And this is critical to understand about the Christian life and what it means to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Thy kingdom come. You see, the king has not come so that one day, Jesus did not come the first time so that one day he can pull us out of this dump of a world and burn it all up and we get to escape to heaven. That is not the view and the vision of the kingdom of God and the view and vision of God has for your life. We have done a grave disservice in the teaching of the church and the way we have shaped out your vision and the Christian vision of heaven In fact, most of us are not attracted to the vision of heaven at all. Like, how many of you have been a part of a choir? I've been a part of a choir. I quit when I was 14 years old. I was part of youth choir. I decided that I was was sick and tired of spending three hours every single Sunday. The idea of three hours in a choir sounded less like, more like hell than heaven to me. And for some of you, hey, I know, I'm sorry. For those of you who love a choir... But even those of you who love a choir, the idea of an eternal choir, which is some of y'all's vision of heaven, is not something that is very appealing. A day or so into it, you go, are we going to do anything else? 
I got my, I got my harp, I got my trumpet, I got my wings. Is this really what we're going to do for the next trillion years? That is, a, that is a piddly vision of heaven because we have thought too small about what heaven is. In fact, we're not leaving this earth to go to heaven. In fact, what is it? The heaven comes to earth. Earth. In fact, that's the vision that we get in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is that it says the new heavens and the new earth will descend down. The new Jerusalem comes here. That's what we pray for. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom here, God. Richard Pratt, who is a seminary professor where I went, has made essentially himself a living going to various churches and speaking at missions conferences in which he talks about this specific issue on the kingdom of God. And he said, this is how most Christians view their life because we have a faulty view of what God is doing in this world. We've begun because we have a very small personal faith in which our vision is that God saves us and then eventually we get to escape this world. He says, if you were to ask most non-Christians on their deathbed, what would be the good life? Here's what they would say, he says. They would say, I hope not to get divorced more than once. I hope my kids don't get hooked on drugs. I hope to make enough money to retire early and I'm gonna die, so I hope to die with as little pain as possible. And if I die and find out there is a heaven, then I hope I was good enough to get in. And then he says, well, let's compare that to the way most evangelical Christians in America would look at the good life. Here's how most of us look at the good life. We'd say, well, I hope not to get divorced more than once. I hope my kids don't get hooked on drugs. I hope to have a good career. I hope to visit missionaries when I travel around the world. I hope to, that when I die, my soul is going to take the shape of wings and I'll fly off to heaven and Peter will welcome me and hand me a big golden harp and give me a seat number, in the, number for a choir in heaven and I'm going to sit in that seat and I'm going to play that harp and sing forever and ever and ever in the worship service of God. And the dream of most Christians, he says, could just describe simply as this, as entering heaven, playing a harp in a blissful state that looks like someone has overdosed on Prozac. But Jesus did not come into this world to fulfill this piddly little dream. He came for something far greater and a far greater life for you to live. You see, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended so that his kingdom could be spread to the ends of the earth. And we who follow him must share that dream as well. And indeed, we must be a part of making it manifest, of, making, of telling the world about that dream as well. You see, the vision of heaven in the Bible is a remade and perfect world. Let's look at one of the descriptions. Yes, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament of what that kingdom will look like and see if it begins to form in you a desire for this world. So we're going to walk and run. It says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 to 10. Hear this description of the kingdom of God. It should be on the screen for you. Isaiah says this, but with righteousness he shall come to judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. All wickedness will be done away with. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Talking about when the king comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fat and calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's a snake. They shall not hurt or destroy. There shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be the full knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover that sea. 
And in that day, the root of Jesse, that's David's kingdom, fulfilled in Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's another description of it in Micah chapter 4. And Micah chapter 4 has the great line there about how we will, at the end of all things, when the king comes, we will, we will hammer our swords into plowshares. That the end of war will come and will turn instruments of war into instruments of harvest and provision. The kingdom of God will be a place of peace, shalom, and righteousness, and justice, and love, and joy. As we see in Revelation 21, there will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. The kingdom has been established, as you know this, when the king has come. And so let me ask you this. Have you grasped a vision for what God is doing in this world? Is that, and, and do you pray to that end? You pray to that end? Have you grasped a vision for how beautiful God's kingdom is, how perfect and glorious it is, how frankly earthy and yet heavenly it is at the same time? A place where we'll have a true and lasting vocation that will fulfill all of our greatest longings and desires that will be an act of worship before the Lord. And when you grasp this vision, guess what will happen to your prayers? They will get really big. I know it's silly, and I've said it twice already, but they will become Miss America-type big. That you'll begin to pray for things that are cosmic and corporate and worldwide. You'll say, gracious king, end sex trafficking in this world. End slavery in this world. End fatherlessness in this world. End abortion. End corruption. End war. End alcoholism in this world. Would you do that, king? Would your kingdom come where everything is made right and good and new? You get, you get specific. Those are general and generic. You drive around Carrollton, as we prayed earlier, and you say, Lord, end the foster system in Carroll County because there's no need of it. Make it no longer necessary, Lord, end welfare programs. We, have, we want to fight about socialism versus capitalism. It's over. It's over. The scarcity of resources is gone. Lord, shut down the Abused Women's Center. We want to end it. That should be the goal of Abused Women's Center, to be go away. That should be the goal. And in God's kingdom it is. Because when his kingdom comes, it's perfect and right and it's good. It's the way the world was meant to be. If you want to pray kingdom prayers, if you want to begin to flow out of you, you've got to get a vision. You have a vision? Seconds. You're going to pray kingdom prayers and they're just going to flow out of you and we have to submit to the will of the king. And here we're going to personalize this a bit more. We have to submit to the will of the king. What's the second phrase of the, Lord's, of the prayer that we're looking at today? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And what is the agency? What is the agency that God has left in this world to spread the good news of his kingdom? What's the agency? It's this thing called the church. It's so frustrating, isn't it, though, that the church does not seem to be very passionate about spreading this, this good news. Why? Because we have a lot of citizens of the kingdom who have said, I love it that Jesus saves me from my sins and that I'm in the kingdom and that I have peace with the king and yet my life is not about living for his kingdom because I'm not submitting it to the will of the king. And therefore, my life is not about sharing it with the world, sharing the good news about this kingdom and this king who is coming. 
But if you're captured by a vision, then you'll live redemptively in this world. And you'll look at the king and say, you are my king. My, your will be done on my life. I will be your ambassador in this world. Use me as you see fit. You see, when this vision has captured you, you begin to say naturally, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in my life. I want to be a part of seeing this kingdom come in this world. You want to use us. You want to use us to make your kingdom visible? Lord, choose me. You want to use us to spread the good news of a king who is coming? Lord, choose me. Here I am. I will go. Thy will be done. Wherever you lead me, whatever you feed me, I will submit to your will. That means, that means this, and this is a really important point. If you're going to pray kingdom prayers, it means that you have to stop being about what? Your kingdom. Your kingdom. We must lay down our right to live for our kingdom. <laughs> There's a story of a pastor. Some of you grew up in a tradition where like, you prayed the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. The pastor would lead. He'd have a pastoral prayer at the end of it. And now, Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray. And everybody would then pray the Lord's Prayer. But very loudly, one Sunday, he looked up at the end of his prayer, and everyone was looking at him rather awkwardly because he had very boldly and very loudly said in the prayer, my kingdom come, my will be done, instead of your kingdom come. That little Freudian slip illustrates a significant truth, right? Haven't you found that you're, maybe you began praying kingdom prayers, but now they, they, if you were to look at them and evaluate them, your, kingdom, your prayers sound far more about somebody else's kingdom, Maybe yours. The thing that kills and undermines a powerful prayer life is praying for my kingdom. We submit to his kingdom and his rule and his reign. When we pray, your will be done. We are yielding to God as we would say that you have the right to do with it as you see fit. Thy will be done is the kind of prayer that might lead to this. It might lead to suffering and death in your life. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life is a very dangerous prayer. Prayer is not about getting God to do your will. And if you believe that prayer is, is, is about getting God to do your will, then you're going to be very frustrated about prayer. No, it's actually about your will being shaped to his desire for your life. Richard Baxter, who was an old Puritan, wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, and here's what he says about prayer. He gives this illustration about how prayer shapes us. And he says this, whenever you are in a boat and you tie it to the bank and you pull yourself in, you are not pulling the bank towards you, but you're pulling yourself towards the bank. And that is kingdom praying. We are not pulling God towards our kingdom. The bank doesn't move, you move. You move towards the unmoved object. You move towards God's kingdom. And so we are submitting our lives to the king of the kingdom. We pray for God's kingdom to come. We are asking God to achieve his purchase, his, his plan in our lives. Yes, we want the kingdom of God to come into our lives. Jesus actually talks about this, that we would be come into the kingdom and the kingdom would come into us, that we would be loyal subjects first and foremost. And once we understand God's purpose for the kingdom, we can see that what he wants to bring into your life is to bring his rule, his reign, his kingship to bear in your life. God wants to root out all other rulers and masters in your life, all other kingdoms that would lay siege to your life. You know, that, that's a great way to describe the Christian life. 
and the growth. But if you were to think about your heart, is that God has said, I own this heart. It is mine. He has uprooted. The devil has been kicked out of the palace. And yet, and yet, the evil one's forces and his kingdom have little outposts and little places in your life and your heart in which God is still bringing your life under the submission of his kingship. And so are you actively seeking to submit Prayers of submission. Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. This is so hard for us to pray because we want something else, don't we? Even the way we think about the Christian life. I love the story. There was a little girl who was given an assignment. She went to school and there was, some teachers, some schools will do this. They have the 100th day of school and which everything about the 100th day of school, they'll have 100th day school. Everything is themed, 100 things, where everything is themed around the number 100. And, and so they asked this question of all the, all the students. They said, so when you're 100 years old and you fill in the blank, when I'm 100 years old, I will what? And her answer to this was, so the little girl said, when I'm 100 years old, I will be tired of everything and everyone. So I'll tell everyone I'm going to Canada, in Canada, but actually I'm going to go to the Caribbean. And I'll live in a tiny hut with my tiny dog, and I'll, I'll order fish tacos when I'm hungry, and I'll live my best, best life with no crap. <laughs> Apparently, she had taken a lot as a second grader. She had her life mapped out. And now, oddly enough, doesn't that sound kind of like yours? Lord, I'll live your, for your kingdom in the way I school and take care of my kids, but man, I am so excited for these people to get out of my house so I can live my life without any crap anymore. Well, I can live in my small condo, it's my small life, and with my small dog, and everything will go well for me. Isn't this how we view our life? And which we retire from the labor of the kingdom of God? Man, what Jesus said, what's he said? That's, that's not the life that he's called us to live. He's called us to live a life of submission to him. No, we actually, you know, we don't, as Christians who are living for the kingdom of God, we don't want to run away from the crap of this world. We run right to it. We run right to it. We run right into the worst and most difficult parts of our world. I heard the story of one dad who decided to move his kids out of a, a kind of lovely part of Florida where they had a big backyard and they had lots of space and they were doing ministry and they were going to move to a northeastern town, yuck, where it snowed and an urban setting where they're going to have no yard and a dangerous neighborhood. And he was asked, why would you do that? And he said, because my kids need something greater than a good backyard. They need to learn that what it looks like to die for the kingdom of God. That's the greatest thing my, I can give my kids, to live for the king and man, we have the greatest example of this. Jesus said, Jesus said that, you know, we don't have to just choose, we don't just simply choose to move out of Florida and go live in a difficult spot. You know what? There's somebody who did that. Jesus left heaven. Forget the Bahamas. It's in shambles right now anyways. There's still tornadoes and hurricanes that happen in the Caribbean. I'm from Florida. I lived through five hurricanes. It's great, but except when the hurricanes come. Jesus left heaven in order to come into the earth and to come to the brokenness and the difficult places of this world. And when he faced hell on earth, it's the cross. He looked at God the Father and said, not my will be done, but your will be done. So that your kingdom may come in this world. Are you willing to submit to that king? Man, it shows you it's a king worth submitting to. In order to bring his salvation, his peace, and his goodness, and his rule, and his reign, and his justice, and his goodness into your life, he was willing to die to bring it into your life. Would you live for his kingdom? Third, 
And finally this morning, if you're going to be somebody who has thy kingdom come prayers just flow out of you, you need to cultivate a longing for the return of the king. Cultivate a longing for the return of the king, for the coming of the kingdom. So how do you cultivate this? I might say this, ask ask God to give you the eyes of Jesus. Ask God to give you new eyes. A lady named Susan Collins, she was a 51-year-old single parent, and she had had serious eye surgery, actually. She had bandages removed from her face, and she said it was unbelievable. She couldn't believe how much she could see. She, she, she had had corneal transplant of a degenerative disease that needed to be reversed by literally by having her cornea replaced, a whole, somebody else's cornea. And the reason she was able to see was because her only son, her 15-year-old son, was killed in a car wreck. And they took his eyes and they gave them to his mother so that she could see the world anew. Do you have the eyes of the Son of God? What would the eyes of the Son of God see when he came to this world? What What did he see? You know, it's interesting. Wherever Jesus goes, there's weeping. There's weeping. Everywhere Jesus went, there's weeping. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He sees Jerusalem, and he knows the rebellion, and he sees their sinfulness. And what is his response? Whoa, I'm so angry at them. No. What does he do? He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps. His heart consistently, he is, he is told that his heart goes out to people with pity, with empathy, with compassion. He wept. He had a grieving state. Do you have a grieving state? Do you have the eyes of Jesus when you look at the world around you? Do you simply see the brokenness of this world as a nuance, uh, an annoyance to you? Or do you see it with the eyes of Jesus, your king? Are you weeping? See, we look around and everything is so broken, so despicably sinful, so destructive and abusive. Are you weeping? Or are you just angry and yelling at the TV? Are you weeping? Christians should weep so much more. We've got, I mean, we've got national debt that is trying to strangle us in the most prosperous country of the world has ever known. We are politically polarized. We are morally bankrupt. There are reasons to weep. We are scared to send our kids to school. That's why the mass majority of you literally don't send your kids to school. Because we're so scared. There are children going up in our culture, in our city, in our neighborhoods, maybe in your home, actually. They have no direction no parenting, no discipline, no hope, no affection, no guidance. That should break our hearts, shouldn't it? The world is troubled by poverty and injustice and war. On earth as it is in heaven, tell that to the people who are living in the Bahamas right now where there's 600 people still missing, possibly literally swept out into the ocean. The gospel seems to make little progress from day, from one day to the next. The wicked, you know, if you go read the Psalms, you know, the psalmist is always talking about this. The psalmist is always talking about the brokenness of this world and how awful it is and how the wicked seem to triumph. And he looks at it and he goes, God, where are you? What's going on with this? I don't understand the brokenness of this world. And maybe what's sad of all is that in the midst of this, the people who are to be the kingdom outpost, the church, the church is so broken down. It's so tepid, it's so ineffective, and it's often the problem. Are you weeping about the state of the church? Or are you just mad at the church? 
You know, last year, they, they just think about this. I mean, the last year, the, they broke a story that in, in Texas alone, 800 cases believed to have happened in the Southern Baptist Convention of Texas, just in Texas alone, of pastors and youth pastors who sexually preyed on young boys and young girls and women and children in the church, and then having been discovered by the church, were not punished or disciplined or exposed or the police called, but were actually helped to find jobs in other churches. And just because it says SBC doesn't mean we get to allow our hearts to kind of disengage from that. Oh, no, no, no. You think it's not happening in our churches, whatever church is our. My goodness, you you have a faulty view of sin in people's hearts. We have a church that is lifeless and self-absorbed. It is toxic to the needy. This should break our hearts. Is our hearts broken even about the state of this church? Just think about your life in the news. Here's Here's my week. I talked to a parent with special needs child who that child, after they've raised that child and loved and cared for that child in a place of stability, that child has now been diagnosed with a rare bone marrow disorder that is most likely terminal within the next year. Talked to parents this week of a child with a borderline personality disorder with OCD. This child, because of the OCD, despite the fact that this person, she goes to church week in and week out as a part of Bible studies, will walk out of a Bible study, walk out, and simply go and throw herself into the arms of a man for days on end. And then come and confess it because of the nature of her disorder and her sin and whatever brokenness is going on. Talk to someone else this week who's, just, who's grieving over the, the death of a beloved child. I talked to three men in the last 10 days who within recent months have considered suicide. All of them in their 20s. This was a good week. Are you grieved? So if we open our eyes and we're given the eyes of Jesus, my goodness, you better be ready. You better be ready to weep. And this grief leads us to ask some questions. For example, like, I thought the king came, didn't he? The whole thing about Jesus, the king coming and bringing healing. And so what's the deal? What's the deal? Why is this world so, so bad? You see, we wouldn't actually have to have the petition, your kingdom come, if it was fully here. Right? This actually brings a a significant and really important theological concept in which the king has come. We call it the kingdom inaugurated. Jesus came. He put his foot on this earth. He started his kingdom uh, moving back and pushing back the the darkness of this world to bring his light into this world. And yet then he left and he's going to come back and consummate his kingdom. That fullness of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day that will happen. But we live in what we theologians call the already and the not yet. In which the king has come. And yet things are not yet perfected in the way they ought to be. Think of it this way. Most historians look at the the encounter of D-Day and essentially understood this, that once the Allies had gained a beachhead at Normandy and pushed into the beachhead around Normandy, that the war was essentially, for all intents and purposes, a done deal. Germany was going to fall. There was nothing that could stop. Between the Russians coming from the east and the United Nations coming from, from the west, it was a done deal. But the Nazis didn't just lay down their arms, did they? They didn't just simply go, oh, you're right, you guys got a beachhead, we're done. Now what happens? A beachhead, the kingdom had come. A new establishment, a new peace had come, and yet it was not fully realized. You see, there was a, 
It wasn't simply a mop-up operation. That mop-up operation took another 10 or so months in which many people died and wept and were, were gross, horrific hardship and suffering and blood and sweat and tears to bring the, the consummation of that victory to bear. The same is true now. And that is, that is very specifically where you and I live. That the king has come, he has gained a beachhead and a foothold in this world. He is back. The king is on the move. That's the good news. And now you as the king, as a part of the kingdom of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, that we are fighting and seeking to see the good news of that kingdom and his message to be made manifest in this world, but we're not in Berlin yet. The fullness of the peace. And this is where we need to see ourselves This is the place of prayer and mission. This is the place that God has called us to reside. And not to escape this world, but to stand literally in the gap between the already and the not yet. To stand in the gap and say, we will live for the kingdom. This is the place where kingdom prayers will rise up from your guts. Rise up from your guts. You see, we reside both in the the tension of grief and hope in the already and not yet. We look around the world, we're given the eyes of Jesus, we see the brokenness in our children's lives and in our home and in our churches and in our city and our world and we grieve and yet we pray, why? Because there is hope. If there was no hope, what's the point of praying? It should be eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die or we simply just get really angry about it and embittered about it but we don't have to. We can grieve and we can hope together at the same time. Without the victory of the king over the death, the declaration of the, to the king reigns, the promise that the king will return, then we might as well not pray. And we may as well not engage in mission, and yet we know we have this promise and this hope that the king is coming back again. And so we pray what? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come prayers, they sound like they say literally thy kingdom come, but they can take on other phrases. You know, it's actually the way the Bible ends. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, the second to last verse, the last sentence of the Bible, it says this. He who testifies to these things says this, surely I am coming soon. And then literally it says this, come, Lord Jesus. Last words of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Would you bring your kingdom to bear? So where, where, has this, where does this rise up? Where do you see the grief and the brokenness and the sin and the depravity and the destruction of this world rising up and you say, Lord Jesus, have mercy. See, I pray this whenever my wife and I feel dismayed about the spiritual state of our kids. I, kinda, I just want to throw my hands up as I look around my house like, God, unless you come, unless you come, my kids are going to remain hard. I pray, I pray this over our, our, the piddly and weak churches that we have. I pray this over our church. What do you need to pray this over? You can be very specific. When the doctor says you have a spot on your lung, oh, King Jesus, come in your mercy. When the doctor says something doesn't look right on the altar shine, you say, Why? Oh, your kingdom come, Lord. No more of this. When your child's in rehab for the third time, your kingdom come. When you watch the news on a nightly basis, the, the response as Christians should be to watch the news on our knees and say, oh, Lord, just your kingdom come. This is despicable. We can't handle this. And here's the beautiful truth, though, that one day that your prayer, thy kingdom come, will be answered. Jesus will come again as king. 
The new heavens and the new earth will come down and the holy city is coming. The picture that God gives us is not of a place far away, but it's going to happen here. We, some of you love Carrollton. I love Carrollton. I think Carrollton's great. Can you imagine how great it's going to be when God comes in his fullness of his kingdom? You ever been to the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon is broken. Can you imagine how glorious this place is going to be? Imagine a world with no bullying, no divorce, and no abusive husbands, and no school shootings, and no dementia, no more dementia, where every child is valuable and not torn apart in their mother's wounds. Imagine a world where everything is as it should be, where fathers love their kids as they ought. Man, this is the world that we long for. You, cr- you praying for it? And that's the world that Jesus has come to bring. And he gave his life for it. I used this, this illustration a number of months ago, but I'm going to use it again. And the, and the movie, The Pastor of the Christ, Mel Gibson, and he may be crazy, he, he might be, but man, he has tapped into some things. If you go back and watch that movie theologically, that there are some things that are beautiful. There's this depiction of Jesus carrying the cross on what's called the Via Della Rosa. And he's carrying the cross, and he's all bloodied and battered, and the crown of thorns is upon his head, and he's weakened. And in the, 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 the passion of the moment, as he's walking the Via Della Rosa, he collapses in his weakness. And we see there his mother runs by his side. And he looks up, and, and the smallest glint of a smile comes across his face. And Mel Gibson takes the words from Revelation 21, and Jesus looks at his mother and says, Mother, behold, I am making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, is the proof, the evidence that he has for, secured for us a future that sin, Satan, death, no kingdom of this world will be able to stop. So will you pray thy kingdom come? Do you understand this? Because of Jesus' victory on the Via Della Rosa and out of the grave, because of Jesus' victory, we can pray big prayers, prayers with vision. The hope is that our God reigns now and forevermore. You know, too many parents tell their kids to be a good sport. Be a good sport. That's what we tell Christians. It's kind of the view we have for the Christian life. Hey, be a good sport because we expect to lose in this world. We're going to be losers, but at the end, we get to escape this world and go to heaven. But that's not, that's not the news of the gospel. The news of the gospel is that we are joining the victorious team. We're on the winning side. And our captain has already won the victory. We're not the losing team. Look at what it says, and we'll end with this. Revelation 11, verse 15 says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign, how long? Forever and ever. The motto of the Moravians was this. Our lamb has conquered. Let's follow him. So maybe pray like this. Our lamb is conquered. Let's pray to him. Will you pray with me? And we're going to pray the same prayer we did earlier at family time, except maybe, maybe you'll pray more deeply this time. I'll give you a moment of quiet. Where do you long to see the kingdom of God come?
Oh Lord, may your kingdom come and the marriages in this room. Lord, would your kingdom come in Carrollton? I used this as an illustration earlier, but it is the desire of my heart that defects would go away. Lord, would your kingdom come in my own life, in my own heart, that I would pastor out of joy, not out of a sense of feeding my own ego and my own kingdom, that I would parent that way as well. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come and save us. Amen.